I, uh, I want to introduce you to uh, Scott uh, at 18 years old. There I am in the red. Uh, I was uh, about this time, uh, my freshman year of college, my buddy Matt and I were trying to figure out what we wanted to do for spring break. And so we were plotting one night in uh, our dorm rooms, trying to figure out where we wanted to go. And we had some friends around. We all started thinking. And the words that kept coming to our mind were simple. Road trip. And so we didn't have a whole lot of money, but we wanted to get out of Phoenix uh, for a few days. And so Matt grew up outside of San Francisco. I grew up outside of Las Vegas. We said, hey, let's road trip. We can stay with our families. They'll probably feed us and we'll be able to save some cash. And so we began to plot this great spring break trip across Northern California and in Las Vegas. It turned out to be a great trip, but in the plotting stage, a bunch of people got involved. It had just been me and Matt, it would have been fine, but there came a point where, uh, I think the phrase is, there was too many cooks in the kitchen. And all of us were kind of figuring out what we wanted to do with the trip, and there was one guy who'd gotten included in this mix. His name was Nick, and Nick had some really strong feelings about what to do, and I had some really strong feelings about to do, and I could feel like, like my heart was a kettle and it was starting to boil. And things were just getting hotter and hotter and hotter, and I'm not somebody who typically has a temper. But in that moment, in that room, Something happened that I really wasn't proud of. I lost it. And I I took my hand and I slammed it down on the desk and I looked at Nick. And again, I'm not proud of myself. But I looked at Nick and I said, Nick, this is not your bleeping trip. And it was like that in the room. Because I said it a lot louder, a lot more emphatically. No one had ever seen me talk like that. No one had ever seen me lose my temper like that. And we kind of all just scattered in that moment. And I felt about about this big. Because I cared about Nick. I was mad that he was, I felt like he was taking over the trip. But I really cared about him. And I realized just how much my careless words had hurt him. So about 24 hours passed, I let tempers cool down, and I went to him and I said, Nick, I blew it. I'm sorry. I should have never spoken to you like that, and I want you to go on this trip. I'm sorry. And he said, thank you, but he said, I'm not, I'm not ready to forgive you yet. And so luckily, we had about a month before spring break, and so by the time we went on that trip, Nick drove one of the cars, and we went on, and we had a great time. And Nick and I went on to keep a great friendship through college and even after. But that was one of the first moments in my life where I realized what it was like to need grace from somebody else and watch them struggle to give it to me. And so I wonder, just by a show of hands in this room, how many of you have had someone you know, like me, somebody you trust, Break a promise, fail, hurt, or wound you emotionally. Raise your hand. Okay, so for the rest of you whose best friend is Jesus, you can just head out the door and we'll see you next week. I mean, everybody eventually gets hurt by the people that we love and trust. Christopher Poloni says it's impossible to go through life unscathed. And that's the truth. It doesn't matter what relationship you're in, whether it's a a friendship, a family member, 
a spouse, a child, a coworker. Eventually, the people who get close enough to us for us to trust them and for us to say that we love each other, eventually we hurt each other. And so it's inevitable that we end up either where I was or where Nick was, either being the person in need of grace or being the person struggling to give grace. And so today, as we wrap up this series called Grace in Real Life, we're going to talk about grace for others. We've been talking about for the last three weeks this idea of grace, not at the theoretical level, not necessarily at the philosophical level, but at the real life level. A couple weeks ago, Tim Kimmel talked to us about how does grace show up in our parenting and our families. Last week, we talked about how do we embrace grace ourselves in the place where we feel like we don't deserve it. Many of us That's where we are. And I said this week is going to build on last week because for many of us, we struggle to give grace because we've never received grace. And you cannot give something you don't possess. And so today I recognize that many of you already have somebody in your mind. You already have somebody you're thinking about as soon as I started talking about this that is not a theoretical person. It's a real life person. It's somebody that you struggle to give grace to today. Maybe it's somebody you've struggled to give grace to for a long time. And so on one hand, I want to recognize that and acknowledge that this may be a hard message to to walk through because of that, because you're thinking about somebody. Maybe if you're watching online, you're tempted to turn me off. Luckily, if you're here in the room, it's a lot harder. You have to get up and walk out. You can just push a button and turn me off if you're watching from home. But I'd encourage you to hang with us. And I'm actually really glad that you have somebody in mind because it could make this message even more significant. Because I think eventually you will end up in a place, if you aren't already there, where you'll need to give somebody grace. And I think what I'm going to share today is going to be super helpful. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 18. If you're new to the Bible, It's totally cool. Matthew is actually the 40th book in the Bible. It's the first book in the section we call the New Testament. And it's an account of the life and teaching of Jesus written by a man named Matthew who spent three years going day to day with Jesus throughout his life and ministry. And in Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story. It's called a parable. And it's a a make-believe, imaginary story that's intended to communicate a really important point. Now, last week we talked about the parable of the prodigal son, and I told you I think it should be retitled the parable of the loving father. I think the people who edited the Bible, they nailed this one. They did a good job with the title. In my Bible, it says the parable of the unforgiving servant. Your Bible may say the parable of the unmerciful servant. Either way, I think this parable is going to have some things to teach us. So would you stand with me as we read this passage? I'm going to read it out loud. You can follow on the screen or your own copy of the scriptures. Beginning in verse 21, here's what Matthew writes. Then Peter approached Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times. I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of God can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents, which is several million dollars in modern day money, 
was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, the master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. That was their method of going through bankruptcy. This man couldn't earn this much in a lifetime, but he was going to go to prison to pay for the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before the master and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave the loan. Again, several million dollars. He just forgave it. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii was one day's wages. So we're talking about three or four months of income. He grabbed the servant and started choking him. And said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what he owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported back to their master everything that had happened. Then after he summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Jesus, I pray that in the place where so many of us are today, where we have a person whose face is in our mind that we're struggling to give grace to, we pray that you would allow your grace to overflow in our hearts and make it possible for us to do what feels impossible today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Now, that's a long passage. Typically, we don't stand that long to read something, but I wanted you to get the full weight and power of what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Because if I could summarize what Jesus says about giving grace to others and summarize those 15 or 16 verses from Matthew 18, here's how I would summarize it in our big idea. That the way Jesus measures how well we grasp grace— is by how much we give grace. The way Jesus measures how well we have grasped, understood, comprehended, how well we've got grace, is by how much we give grace. Now, I wish this wasn't true. I wish that we could just have a test, maybe multiple choice, true-false, Maybe, maybe even a couple essays to be able to show Jesus that we grasp grace because that would be easier. But Jesus is not interested in what is easy. He's trying to measure how well we have experienced and comprehended his teaching and reality about grace. And the way that he does it is he says, it's how well you give it. It's not how, how well you receive it for yourself. It's how well you give it. And we see this again and again in the Gospels. Jesus' most famous prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. In that prayer, he teaches us to pray. And he says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. I wish it stopped right here. 
Like, Jesus, forgive our debts. No, but he goes on. As we have also forgiven our debtors. Jesus constantly connects the grace that we receive with the grace that we give. The forgiveness that we've received with the forgiveness that we give. And what I think Jesus is trying to show us is that we don't understand grace if our heart is not filled with gratitude. The, the word grace in our English language comes from the Latin word gratia. Moves from Latin to French to English. And, and gratia is translated thankful. It's impossible to disconnect the concept of grace from the reality of gratitude. Not only linguistically, but theologically. And and the truth is, if we have not understood how much grace we've been given, and our heart isn't filled with gratitude, then we don't turn and give that grace away. If we're entitled to grace, we're not thankful for grace. Put another way, It's impossible to be a graceful person if you're not also a grateful person. Because if you think about anything in your life, the things that you are um, most entitled to, you also are the least grateful for. If you feel like you're just owed something, you're not constantly telling God or somebody else how thankful you are for them. And yet, if, if you have a profound sense of gratitude for something, you recognize how undeserving you are of it, you begin to live more open-handedly with it and more gracefully with it. Now, I said at the beginning of this message that a lot of us are going to struggle with this because we've got somebody in our heads, somebody we struggle to give grace to. And that's part of the problem we face with this idea of grace for others. The other part of this struggle is that we live in an incredibly ungracious time and in an incredibly ungracious culture. It it is um, actually more profitable. It is actually um, more helpful for you in our time and day if you are ungracious than if you are gracious. You can obtain a lot more influence, popularity, Money, even fame, if you traffic in ungraciousness. And it doesn't matter what issue we talk about, what side of the aisle you're on, on both extremes, there is incredible ungraciousness. And we joke that our culture doesn't disciple us into patience with Amazon Prime and microwaves. We're constantly impatient waiting okay, when is it going to happen? When is it going to be here? It's late. The same thing happens with grace. We don't live in a time where we are formed into gratitude and graciousness. And this week I went online and I looked up what is the opposite of grace. I just typed in antonym of grace. And I want you to consider how many of these words are going to appear on the screen that I'm going to read. How many of these words you saw played out this week? The opposite of grace is cruelty, disfavor, harshness, hatred, malevolence, meanness, 
unforgiveness, unkindness, ill will, enmity, animosity, hostility, antagonism, spitefulness, loathing, bitterness, resentment, resentment, malice, and disapproval. I feel like I just scrolled through my social media feed. And so not only is grace hard, because we have real people that we're struggling to give it to, but it's also hard because everywhere we go, we're given an out or a pass on having to give grace. And yet we open the scriptures and we read Matthew 18, and we read Jesus say that if you will not give forgiveness and grace to someone else, Jesus says, my father will withhold it from you. Jesus connects the grasp we have on his grace with the way that we're giving it away to someone else. And yet I know some of you in your head right now are just saying, Scott, I just can't do it. I just can't give him grace. I just can't forgive him. And part of me wants to say, me too. Five and a half years ago, I moved to Prescott from Phoenix. I'm not always, you know, thinking that was a great decision in the middle of February. I'm always thinking it's a great decision in the middle of July. But I didn't realize just how much I had to give grace about and forgive until I left. Because my wife and I, after we left Phoenix, began to process what happened in especially the last couple years in Phoenix with the church that we were a part of. And we began to realize just how deeply we had been hurt. How deeply we had felt wounded and betrayed by people that we thought we could trust. And in 2017, we moved here in 2016, One of the phrases that we said to each other was, I can't forgive what happened here. I can't give grace for that. I can't let that go. Because it felt to us like if we did, it would be saying it was okay. And sometimes what makes giving grace and forgiveness hard is that it starts compounding. Like if you only had to give grace for this one thing, it'd be one thing. But then it just keeps stacking up. And over time, we began to do some really hard work in our hearts individually and together to begin to process those things. But part of what helped me get beyond that phrase to where I am today is moments like I told you about it at the beginning of the sermon. See, I've been deeply wounded in the context of this, and I've deeply wounded people in the context of this. Some of you have been hurt by blind spots in me. Some of you have been hurt by careless words of mine. And in the words of Matt Wade, one day you will need the same grace you will not give someone else. 
And it's really hard to hold on to ungraciousness and unforgiveness when you're having to face your own need for grace and forgiveness. So right now, everybody in the room, everybody watching at home, I want you just to take a second, set aside your notes, set aside your phone that you're scrolling social media on right now, and just put your hands like this on your, on your uh, thighs. Just put your hands out. This is the way we all come to Jesus in need. Not earning, not deserving, in need. And not because of anything we did, but because of his kindness, he gives us his grace. Now I want you to take those hands and I want you to clench them into fists. These aren't fists of anger. These are fists that are holding on tight to grace because you know it's the only way you're going to make it through. The only way you're going to survive this season is by God's grace. And so you're holding on for, for dear life. Now I want you to take your hands and extend them forward. And this is giving grace to other people. This is giving them the grace that they don't deserve. Now I want to ask you a question. Which is the place where you're stuck? Have you received God's grace that you didn't deserve, you didn't earn, he gave it to you as a free gift? Are you really holding on to it and grasping it because you know that's the only way you're going to make it through? Or are you struggling to give other people what you know you don't deserve yourself. Which is the spot where you're stuck? In my experience as a pastor, the hardest gap is from here to here. And it's where most of us get stuck. We can grasp grace for ourselves, but we struggle to then give it to others. Except what Jesus would say is, you haven't really grasped my grace until you've given it away. Now, I know some of you, you're fighting me right now in your mind. And I want to explain it some things that grace is not. Grace is not niceness. Niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> Kindness is. But niceness is not. What's the difference? Kindness is doing something that's genuinely kind. Niceness is saying, bless her heart. <laughs> A thin veneer of superficiality that covers over real meanness. Grace is not a free pass. Grace isn't saying, hey, this is just your license to do whatever you want. Grace is also not pretending it's okay. When Jesus comes and dies on the cross for our sins, he's not saying, hey, it's okay. No big deal. He had to die. Obviously, it's not okay. Grace isn't ignoring. I I'll tell you, nothing in life gets better when you ignore it. Not a toothache, not that sound, that rattle in your car. 
Not a relationship that you know is not okay. Nothing gets better by ignoring. Grace is not avoiding accountability. Grace is not eliminating consequences. I mean, we see David in the middle of the scriptures, this man after God's own heart. God gives him massive grace. But then what happens? David pays the price for his sinful choices, even the ones that God has forgiven. So I just want to encourage you, if you're saying, I can't give grace because of these things, that's not what grace is. But the way that Jesus measures how well we grasp grace is by how well we give it. And so, friends, I don't know any way around giving grace. But I know it's something that we all struggle with. And so I want to share with you five steps to giving grace. Now, I tell you, I think the tendency is to go, Scott, well, it's just five steps. It's super easy. No, if you think these things are easy, friends, wake up. They're not. Here's the first one. You have to practice grace, practice gratitude for the grace that you've been given. Practice gratitude for the grace you've been given because you will never be grateful for something you feel entitled to and you won't give things away that you feel entitled to. You'll just hold them on to for yourself. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace, for you've been saved by grace through faith. I memorized a different translation when I was a kid. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. It goes on to say, so that no one can boast. This is not a house of boasting. Part of the reason I tell you stories about my wife and I going to therapy and me dropping an F-bomb on a friend in college is so that you know I'm not up here to boast. The only thing I'm boasting is that God's grace came to me in a place I didn't earn it and I don't deserve it. And as Lisa Turkhurst said, it's easier to give grace when I remember how much I need grace. And some of you, it's hard for you to give grace because you have forgotten just how much God forgave in you. If you're like, Scott, I can't forgive them. Well, God forgave the worst in you. And if God forgave the worst in you, then is it possible he could give you the grace to forgive the worst in them too? So practice gratitude for the grace you've been given. Number two, Weed your heart of bitterness and resentment. If you're not in the Prescott area, this won't make as much sense, but we're living through a very warm winter. Not a lot of snow, not super cold. And what that means is that my weeds are taking uh, time that should be my break. They're taking my time. They're popping up in my yard. Typically, you know, I weed in the warm months. But I was taking the trash out yesterday and I realized like there is some weeds in some places they shouldn't typically be because it's been warm. And friends, our hearts are the same way. Our hearts grow up weeds of bitterness and resentment. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Now, what this can't mean is that somebody wouldn't be worthy of the grace of God because none of us are worthy of it. What the writer is saying is make sure that no one falls short of experiencing the grace of God through you and that in your heart, no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Some of you, you have a 
root, uh, bitter and uh, resentment fruit problem. You've got weeds in your heart that have been growing for so long. They're now above the surface and they're bearing fruit. And, and you're going to need to pull those. But some of you who feel okay because you don't see anything above the surface need to remember that just because you don't see it above the surface doesn't mean it's not taking root beneath the surface. And some of us tend to be proactive weed pullers. We just pull what's there above the surface. But the truth is nothing appears above the surface that hasn't first been growing underneath the surface. And it isn't just enough to be reactive and pull the weeds when you see them pop up. If you want to keep a weed-free garden in your heart, you have to constantly be vigilant to be making sure that nothing is taking seed or taking root that one day will grow up in your heart. And when you allow hurt to go unaddressed, when you allow a wound to go undealt with, when something begins to fester inside of you, that one day will bear fruit as bitterness and resentment. And what the writer of Hebrews says is eventually that will cause trouble and it will defile many. Because what happens in your heart doesn't stay in your heart. It affects every person you're in relationship with. Number three, cultivate compassion and empathy for others. For those of you who are new to church, maybe you're figuring out what you believe about the Bible. Let me tell you from an extra biblical source, there have been multiple scientific studies that have found that if you want to forgive someone, one of the most helpful things to do is to cultivate empathy for them. There is a double-digit percentage increase in your likelihood of forgiving somebody if you can increase your empathy for them. What is empathy? It's connecting with the person on a human level, recognizing that you share something in common that you can relate to or you've experienced what they've experienced. It's feeling what they're feeling. It's putting yourself in their shoes. You go, Scott, why would I want to do that for that person who hurt me? Because you're not going to forgive them when you turn them into this unhuman monster. You're only going to forgive them when they remain a broken, sinful person in need of God's grace, just as you are. And 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. What Paul is saying here is that God has not called us to do anything that he will not also give us the grace to carry out. And it is only by grace that we show empathy to somebody who's hurt us. It's only by God's grace that we give grace. And grace is that thing that binds us together. I love what Donald Miller says. He says, we don't think of our flaws as the glue that binds us to the people we love, but they are. Grace only sticks to our imperfections. When you meet somebody who's perfect, they don't become your best friend. There's nothing to relate to. No, the people that we end up sticking to are the people who are just as imperfect and in process as we are. When somebody tells a story about how they blew it, we don't like judge them and blow them off and walk away. We go, yep, I did that too. See, grace sticks to our imperfections and it binds us together. 
Number four, forgive as Jesus has forgiven you. The longer you follow Jesus, the more in danger you are of forgetting just how much he forgave you in the beginning. And this is why you rarely see baby Christians who are proud of their salvation, but you often see mature Christians who are proud because we have forgotten just how much Jesus forgave us for. So notice I didn't just say forgive, period. Forgive as Jesus has forgiven you because every time you're called to forgive, you have to remember Jesus forgave the worst in me. And now he's calling me to forgive something horrible in somebody else. And in Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, and be kind, not nice, and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. You might say, Scott, I just can't forgive that person. And I tell you, I've been there. But what if you made just one addition to that sentence? What if instead of saying, I can't forgive that person, you said, I just can't forgive them today? Because there are some things that you're doing today that you never thought you could ever do. Some of you say, I could never go to church again. And here you are today. I could never let somebody back in my life again, and you're sitting next to somebody. I could never share my faith. I I could never pray aloud. I, I could never give. I could never, and there are things that you're doing today that you said you could never give. And the truth was, you couldn't do it on that day, but now you're doing it today. And so if you're struggling to forgive somebody today, I I hear you. But what if you left room for God to do what he's been doing your entire life? Turn the impossible into possibility. And then we're going to go to number five, because forgiveness is a decision and a process. Number five, with discernment and prayer, set boundaries, pursue reconciliation, and rebuild trust. Because forgiveness is letting go of the pursuit of revenge and trusting God to bring justice. But what do you do after that? What do you do with somebody who is actively hurting you and abusing you? Should you just keep letting him do it? No. You set boundaries. What, what do you do with the fact that you're ready to seek forgiveness, but they're not ready to forgive you? Well, that's reconciliation because it involves two people. What do you do with the fact that you thought you could trust them and then they, they blew it entirely, you know, because trust is built in droplets and it's lost in buckets? Well, you have to work through rebuilding trust. And that's why we started this with discernment and prayer. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. None of you have the word shrewd in your Instagram bio today. It's not a word a lot of us are proud to be described as, but it's what Jesus called us to. With discernment, with shrewdness, we have to wrestle these things out. And I could spend the rest of the year talking to you about trust and reconciliation and boundaries, but I don't have that time today. So what I did is if you visit our website, prescottcornerstone.com slash resources, there's a green button right here that says resources mentioned in a sermon. 
And I put together this week a number of resources for you if this is an area where you're struggling because I know one sermon isn't enough to answer all your questions and figure everything out. There are books, courses, messages, and even a link to counselors. One final word, some of you guys are in our community groups. We've got over 20 groups and about 200 people who will meet this week in living rooms. And if you're in a group, this is a message that's going to test your group. Are we going to be honest? Are we going to be real? Are we actually going to help each other apply what we're learning? Are we going to allow each other to be in process? And if you're in one of those groups, I am so grateful. And please don't skip your group this week. Because we all need help giving grace to others. Going from here to here to here. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. And it's hard, Jesus, when you show us an opportunity to give to others what you have given to us. We pray this week that we might experience your power and presence, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, overflowing grace in us. And we pray that you'd give us the grace that we need to do everything you're calling us to do. In your name we pray, amen.